0: Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee Davies. Hello. So we are here with our first official episode of 2023, which as always is our top 10 films of the year lists. Most film journalists tend to do these in December, but we are completists. This is always one of our most popular episodes. We are greatly looking forward to it, partly because it's been a long time since we've last recorded because... Morgan had COVID, and then I had COVID, and then Morgan continued to have COVID. How are you doing? Uh, I would say
1: middling. I will not be watching another movie for, I guess, is a month. I'm going to take a little break. We'll continue to figure out stuff to record. But I realized partway through December, I was like, oh, catching up with all these movies is definitely giving me migraines. And I persisted because I wanted to watch them. No one listening to this should feel like, oh, no, why did she do that? I did it to myself. But... <laughs> As a result, I have seen many fewer films that came out last year than usual because I was sick for a quarter of the year. third of the year, I can no longer do math. So from my end, anyway, I love doing these episodes. It was really fun, despite the migraines, to catch up with some stuff in December. But because I caught up with so much last minute, I feel like this list is very much just like, here's some stuff I liked. As opposed to a carefully calibrated, you know, 1 through 10. So from my point of view, it's just like, I recommend these films. The the 1 and 2 are pretty set in stone. But um, many great movies for us to talk about regardless. Gavia,
0: would you like to start us off with your number 10? I will. And also just a note on formatting, because we will inevitably have overlaps if one of us has a film that is appearing higher up in the list. The other person will just like pass it up. So we will discuss it later. So my number 10 is The Eternal Daughter by Joanna Hogg.
1: Yes, and we'll be discussing that in a little bit. My number 10, I know you have not seen, so I will talk about it a bit now. It is Catherine Birdie*, which was directed by Lena Dunham. I specifically included this because I had a bunch of stuff kind of clustered around number 10 and I wanted to pick something that I knew you wouldn't have. So, this is an adaptation of a beloved YA novel that I don't think was ever
0: as big in the UK, but certainly... Yeah, I've when... never heard of this until the film came out and all these millennial women were like, I love Catherine Caldberti.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've had multiple conversations with people of basically our exact age cohort from the United States who were just like gaga over this film. And I think part of it's definitely that it was a meaningful book to them when they were kids. I definitely read it. I don't remember it specifically, but um, I was just so taken with this movie. It was one of the most joyous film-watching experiences I had this year, even though I was watching it on my laptop in my sickbed. The basic setup is that Birdie, the main character, who is a 14-year-old girl played by the absolutely marvelous Bella Ramsey, who can currently be seen on HBO in The Last of Us, um, has just gotten her period for the first time, and she tries to hide that for a while and eventually her parents find out and that means that she is eligible to be married off and her parents who are played by billy piper and andrew scott very fun have some financial difficulties because her dad spends too much money and so they really need to marry her off to, to for income but she's not interested in this and basically sabotages like one successive marriage setup after another inadvertently leading to a point where like the potential husband is just the most (laughs) unappealing, just like the most unappealing man imaginable. But what I loved so much about this, A, the cast are all marvelous. Bella Ramsey was actually 14 years old, I believe when they shot it. And she just has so much like awkward 14 year old girl energy. And I think that's what's special about the film is that it completely understands that point where like you've hit puberty but you're not like a full teenager yet, and you don't quite have like self-consciousness <laughs> in the like way where you know how you're supposed to behave. So she's kind of a brat, but in a way where you're you just love her. And unlike Persuasion, which came out last year and was an abomination, this has a lot of knowledge about the period in which it's set, but also it's sort of playing with that in a fun kind of modern way. And I think that Doing adaptations is a great idea for Lena Dunham, who obviously has some issues in terms of her public persona, but is very talented. And because this is an, is an adaptation, it kind of distances her a little bit from some of her creative impulses, but she gets to show off her great talents. So if you were someone who like didn't like girls, there's no reason why you wouldn't enjoy this movie. And Andrew Scott is really hot and funny in it. So what better pitch can I make? to all of you. It's streaming on Amazon Prime. I choked up through the entire
0: last third of the film. It's so great. And Bella Ramsey is very good in The Last of Us, which I have just been reviewing this week.
1: <laughs> she was in Game of Thrones, but I don't think I was watching by the point she showed up. And I was just like, who is this prodigy? It's such an unglamorous, sort of unegotistical performance. She's absolutely incredible. It's worth watching for her alone, but the whole movie is a delight. So,
0: Yeah. So my number nine is Decision to Leave by Park Chan-wook. It's a crime thriller, but it's also a romantic mystery drama. It echoes noir era films with that sort of mix of genres, but is very much a modern movie. It's set in contemporary South Korea, and it is about two middle-aged people, one of whom is a police detective, and the other one of whom is a suspect in her older husband's murder slash accidental death and Park Chan-wook is obviously an enormously successful and famous international director. I have watched and enjoyed many of his films particularly the ones that are kind of more in the gothic zone. I am not a fan of old boy which I kind of just view as a lot of violence (laughs) Um, but this movie I, I appreciated his description of it which was he described it as his most adult film yet which is a really intriguing description because It is actually a lot more sort of toned down than a lot of his other movies. It doesn't have any sexually explicit material and it's not particularly violent. It's more about this very weird psychological conflict slash romance between these two people. It also has quite an unusual structure and is very gorgeously filmed. It looks beautiful and has this particularly distinctive set piece on top of this weird rock formation where the husband dies at the beginning of the film. And I just really enjoyed the fact as well that a lot of people kind of describe it as erotic, but it's very much to do with tension that doesn't have sex on screen, which is something that I think a lot of contemporary filmmakers basically don't understand what to do, because that's the sort of skill that is perfected during the censorship era when you basically had to find ways to display that kind of adult relationship without showing anything. So I just find that very compelling, and the two lead performances are fantastic, which is Tang Wei and Park Heil. So yeah, that's my number nine.
1: Yeah, I didn't particularly care for that movie, but it's it's always really interesting to me when someone who is smart and has good taste, like mounts a strong case for a film that I didn't like as you just did. I also think Tang Wei is incredible in that movie, even though I didn't massively care for it. Definitely worth seeing. My number nine is
0: Top Gun Maverick. (laughs) Which I simply had to include. I mean, I gave this a five-star rating, because when I was looking yeah. through what movie should I include, I was like, I did give this five stars and it was incredible, but it, it didn't quite make my top ten.
1: <laughs> yeah. So what to say about this film that hasn't already been said? I mean, obviously putting these lists together is very personal. It's kind of becomes a weird mixture of like, what did I objectively think was the best movie of the year and what had an effect on me personally. And um. I've been in bed for four months, not able to do anything. And I saw this movie on an IMAX screen with a friend of mine who also, as it happens, has long COVID. And um, just like thinking about that experience is very meaningful to me in retrospect. Like, we just had such a fucking good time (laughs) with this movie. But I also think. In addition to it being just like wildly entertaining, I think it is genuinely masterfully crafted. I don't think it's a perfect movie, but I think that Joseph Kaczynski, who directed it, just got nominated for a Director's Guild Award. And I was like, good for him. That seems deserved to be. I'm sure that Tom Cruise was basically directing the movie from the shadows, but like whatever. And the combination of the just like thrilling action pieces, which again seeing them in the IMAX, I was just like, oh my god. And the fact that this movie actually like has feelings in it and made me feel things, which I wasn't expecting at all, I just think about it so fondly and it was completely not something that I was expecting to have that strong a reaction to when I first heard about it or even when I was going to the theater and I was very excited to see it. I've also been thinking a lot about the propaganda aspect of the movie in conjunction with its uh, Indian doppelganger, which may or may not show up uh, later on this list, I don't know. And that's another thing that sort of complicates the film, but to me, it's such a nostalgia exercise, even in terms of like the way it engages with military propaganda, that it doesn't bother me that much, which isn't to say that there aren't critiques to be made, but I kind of was just like, this is really more propaganda for like Hollywood and Tom Cruise, and that's a whole other conversation Yeah, to I be mean, had. the Tom Cruise
0: element is far more problematic.
1: <laughs> 100%. But I was having a conversation with someone recently, and I don't mean this to sound like it's all ethically okay, but... I actually feel like the fact that we all know Tom Cruise is a huge freak and like has definitely done bad things and are kind of just like, well, we'll go watch his movies anyway, feels less compromised to me than, for instance, the Brad Pitt situation unfolding in Hollywood right now, where like, it's grim. Everyone's just pretending that nothing has happened. And that feels worse to me than this, where it's like, we've tacitly come to an agreement with Tom Cruise, right? Again, it feels like they're just like layers upon layers of sort of like, Moral compromise within the movie in terms of crews, the military industrial complex, the Hollywood film system, and like how much you're willing to buy into all of those things and how much you're bothered by them. And I actually think that is part of what makes the movie such an interesting text. But above all, planes go fast. Yes, (laughs)
0: it's extremely thrilling. (laughs) I mean, the planes are really not to be discounted because we did an episode on the first film a while ago, go go listen to it. And in the first one, the entertainment value is like heavily embedded in the relationships and the homoeroticism and just the vibes. And in this one, it is just pure, incredible action. It is so well-directed. It is so exciting. And it just looks fantastic. And they have found ways to inject new characters into the story, which are pretty acceptable. (laughs) (laughs) And also it's like just in terms of its place in the Hollywood ecosystem – This year, there's like two big blockbusters, which feel like real movies. It's this and Avatar 2, which has had like, of course, loads of discussion has made a fuck ton of money. I personally did not think much of Avatar 2. I found it objectionable and quite annoying. At some point, I hope we will review that. But like, people are like, this is the, finally, films are back. They found a cure to the horrible, like, shitty Marvel era. And I'm like, actually, Top Gun was that. Top Gun is a better film than Avatar 2, in my view.
1: (laughs) Well, and Avatar 2, I feel like, I mean, I'm sure there will be kids who are obsessed with that world, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, for a long time, but I feel like already the cultural impact of that movie is fading, as it did with the first one. Whereas Top Gun literally was making huge amounts of money for like six months. It only just showed up on streaming last month, and it came out in May. And it was such a thrill to have a genuine cinematic phenomenon like that in theaters. And again, it's a huge movie starring Tom Cruise. It's not like it was an underdog, but no one was expecting the degree to which it succeeded. And the movie is about Tom Cruise saving Hollywood. And then like the movie did save Hollywood. And it's kind of nice to be like, yeah, <laughs> like cinema. So yeah, I'm sure everyone has seen that. But it was a big part of my movie
0: going year, So it felt like it had to be on the list. Well, my number eight is very different. It is Saint-Omer, which and Morgan has later on.
1: <laughs> yes, that is much higher up on my list. So um, we will discuss that later. But my number eight is something that you've already mentioned, which is the Eternal Daughter, which is a sequel to um, director Joanna Hogg's souvenir duology, both of which we raved about in previous iterations of this end of the year episode. It definitely is a sequel, but it's stylistically completely different. The souvenir films are very naturalistic, I guess, although so you have some surreal moments. But Gavia, how would you
0: describe the aesthetic of The Eternal Daughter? <laughs> Mid-20th century British ghost story with a colour palette borrowed from early Technicolour, so a lot of green and pink. I mean, for further context, the films to which this acts as a sequel are set in the 80s and they are memoir films about Joanna Hogg's youth, an abusive relationship she was in when she was a film student. And they are absolutely fantastic. They're very emotionally intense. And they are just incredible examples of observation of human character and kind of excavation of her own personal history. Whereas this one is essentially her at the current age because it stars Tilda Swinton in the two lead roles, one of whom is the Joanna Hogg character. And she and Tilda Swinton are peers in real life. like They've known each other for their entire lives. So this means that you have essentially a two-hander film starring Tilda Swinton and Tilda Swinton as a mother-daughter duo and obviously Tilda Swinton also played the mother to her own daughter Honor Swinton Byrne in the previous two films. I realize this is probably sounding extremely complicated to people who have not seen the film but I promise it's very simple but yeah it's just about them going on a little holiday to a secluded former kind of manor house now hotel And it has an absolutely tremendous tertiary role for a young woman who plays the receptionist at this hotel. Her name is Carly Sophia Davies. I think maybe a first time actress in films at any rate, but like, you know, you have this mother-daughter pair who show up and they're very rich. And then she is just this annoying, incompetent, mean receptionist. And it's such a minor role, but like it's so perfect and funny because like she's constantly interrupting these like really emotionally intense moments but I just love how much this film works on a really small scale. Like it's fantastic performances from Tilda and Tilda and it's just incredibly atmospheric and the colour palette is gorgeous. And Joanna Hogg just knows what she's doing. She really understands the British upper class in a way that is almost unique in the British film industry, which is deeply ironic because almost everyone in the British film industry is extremely posh and has no sense of introspection at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's from that world and has the rare ability to actually comment upon it and perceive it with insight, which as you say, most people don't. But the sort of dramatic setup of this movie in terms of like the emotional conflict is that it's her mother's whatever birthday. She's her mother's very old. And they've gone back to this house that she lived in during the evacuations in World War II. It was belonged to her aunt or something at that time. And um, there's just this endless need from Julie, the younger character, same name as in the souvenir, to make sure her mother is happy at all times. And also she kind of wants some emotional catharsis from her mother. Like she simultaneously wants her to be happy, but also wants to know what's really going on inside of her. Clearly the mother is this repressed upper crust British woman who never talks about her feelings and is clearly a lovely person, but like, you're not going to get that kind of connection. And it felt so astute about a certain kind of parent child relationship where the child is kind of always trying to get something out of the parent that just isn't, there but it's not because the parent is a bad parent it's just that there's just this fundamental thing that kind of can't be resolved and julie the younger tilda sometimes acts really childish and sort of immature because she's reverted to like being a kid around her mother and i initially had this a bit lower down on my list and then the more i thought about it i was like On the surface, what this movie is trying to do is really modest, but the emotional stuff is actually really deep. And it also is perfect. Like she sets out to do something. She completely accomplishes that task. And that's really impressive. That's precisely why (laughs) Thals. Right. And like Tilda Swinton is doing both lead roles and she's so good. And like, they clearly didn't have a huge budget. So you don't ever see both Tilda's in the same frame at once. Like it cuts between them. And at no point did I ever feel like there were not two people actually having a conversation with each other. I'm in Incredible editing. Amazing.
0: And also an amazing detail that you pointed out is that because Tilda, the younger is impersonating her own real-life daughter in the first film. She has adopted her method of holding her pen, because Honor Swinton Byrne has a really strange way of writing. So she's impersonating this way and like, holding her hat, her pen in the wrong hand. And I was like, I did not pick up on that, but that's incredible.
1: <laughs> and I bet there's a bunch of other little stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, I just have such admiration for Joanna Hogg and like what she's doing with these movies. I think she's incredible. And I found this really, really, really satisfying to watch. It basically got totally dumped in the United States. I was,
0: I was literally about to say, if 50% of our listeners watch this, we will have doubled the viewership for this film.
1: <laughs> I swear to God, it really makes me mad. I mean, it's hard out there for independent films right now, but please seek it out and watch it, especially if you like the souvenir movies. But if you didn't see them, it really doesn't matter. Like This stands on its own. So
0: yeah, go check out The Eternal Daughter.
1: Gavia, what did you have at number seven?
0: I have RRR by S.S. Rajamouli.
1: All right. Tell me about
0: it. <laughs> so um, as Morgan mentioned, she and I have actually discussed this several times in conjunction with Top Gun because they are sort of the problematic fave blockbusters of the year. I'm sure our listeners are aware of this movie. It is an enormously popular Indian Telugu action film with musical numbers. It is by a director who, I've seen a few of his other films, he is the highest grossing Telugu filmmaker and um, this film is just so fucking entertaining. It is the most fun you can possibly have. It's wildly over the top. It is getting a hugely popular reception in America, particularly, which is kind of causing discourse for reasons I will explain in a minute. But um, basically the premise is that it is a wildly fictionalised historical action movie about two real-life revolutionaries who either didn't even meet in real life or like were barely related but it pairs them up in a sort of fast and furious style way both stylistically and conceptually because it involves like them becoming best friends but one of them's undercover for a while it's not particularly relevant what the premise is the basic reason why this is so popular is because the action sequences are just beyond exciting it has extremely sincere intense big emotions it looks incredible in every scene the level of imagination that goes into all of its set pieces is extremely impressive and also it has fucking great songs Um, if you enjoyed this hop on over to Netflix and watch this director's previous two films Bahubali 1 and 2 Bahubali 2 is the biggest Telugu film ever they're almost as good they are just absolutely incredible in the same way but yeah this is a worldwide phenomenon partly because people are fucking starved for good blockbusters that are just like fun and entertaining But also it is kind of embroiled in Indian politics in a way that is sort of not necessarily visible to a lot of people who are, you know, not aware of Indian politics. I mean, it becomes pretty clear in the final act that there is elements of this which are blatantly and openly propagandistic, but at the same time, it is not as propagandistic as a lot of mainstream Bollywood films of the past like five years or so. The key issue here is that there is a immense Hindu nationalist right wing movement in India. This is not necessarily what you describe as a Hindu nationalist film, which you could say of a lot of Bollywood kind of action movies. This is not Bollywood, but it does kind of change elements of the historical figures' lives. Like one of the figures is given this like extremely explicit Hindu imagery that is just like a fantasy. And also in real life there were kind of riots at various screenings and that sort of thing which has happened to other films with a far less explicitly political theme like the actual explicit political themes of this film are to do with you know fighting back against the British Empire the villains are British but yeah it does have this sort of problematic element to it which means very different things to Indian people foreigners in the Western world watching it, and also like Indian American people who are watching this phenomenon unfold and are like, what the fuck is up with all these white people who don't understand what the film is about? So there's a lot of different angles on this one, but um, I think pretty much everyone can agree that it's extremely entertaining.
1: <laughs> yeah, we watched this with friend of the podcast, Claire, I'm using your projector at your apartment over the summer, and rarely have I had more fun watching a movie I have much more serious reservations than you about the political component which is why it is not it wouldn't have made my top 10 anyway but it might have gotten closer but I even as we were watching it I was like there's something up here that I uh." yeah yeah and then I did research after and was like oh no I mean I think the film has many artistic and technical virtues it is so much fun as you said but um I'm a bit troubled that it's having the reception in America without a sort of sufficient conversation about what's going on in India, which I think is not being talked about enough in general in the rest of the world. I understand why the average moviegoer in America is not going to sort of be up on that. But my hope is that as this movie continues to get attention and probably some Oscar nominations, that it will shed some light on what's happening in terms of the Hindu nationalism. Because it's
0: like significantly more immediate than the kind of discourse we see about like, oh, is Captain Marvel military propaganda? It's like people are having physical altercations over Hindu nationalism at like cinemas.
1: Yeah, that was what made, I mean, I found it really interesting to think about this in Top Gun in conjunction with each other. I think it's a really productive line of thought. But the sort of Hindu nationalist situation is so active and alive right now that that's what makes me uncomfortable. Yeah
0: with this i mean for context for something we were discussing just the other day is like i was looking up when sharuk khan's next film is coming out and i noticed that there are like people are burning he's like one of the most famous actors in india burning him in effigy and um allegedly it's like because there's objections to the film which is as far as i can tell literally just a spy action blockbuster but like really it's kind of to do with islamophobia because he is muslim so it's like the content of the film is almost irrelevant. Like They find reasons to like build a controversy, which we are all very familiar with with other versions of, kind of how far-right movements act to pop culture like Disney in yeah. the US.
1: So we'll try to link to some articles about this in the show notes if people want to learn more about that. I also imagine a lot of our listeners have seen this movie because it has become quite a phenomenon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but in any case... My number seven is another blockbuster, this
0: time an American blockbuster, and that is Nope,
1: which Gavia has higher up on her list. So we well, will save that. I've
0: got some good news for you, Morgan, because it's at number six, so we can discuss it immediately.
1: Great! <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, this is another one I saw on an IMAX screen, and I'm so thinking back on it, I'm like, hmm... It was so fun to see, to see that movie in the theaters, and I think when a movie is great, it works no matter what, but I'm so glad I got to see this on a, an enormous screen with just like crazy surround sound because, well, I mean, I think everything about this movie works, but the technical aspects are so incredible, and it is a movie about the spectacle of movie making, and so the hugeness of it was so satisfying to me, and I think is part of why I respected it so much in terms of Jordan Peele being like, yeah, I'm going to make a fucking huge-ass blockbuster movie and you're all going to love it. There are We don't get many of those anymore. <laughs> yeah, so. I
0: mean, for a while I was thinking, I don't know if I, I'm even going to put this on my list. And I was thinking, oh, I think I liked Get Out more. And then the more I thought about this film, the more I was just like, it's actually just incredibly impressive in every regard. Like, obviously I enjoyed it. We discussed this film in a lot of depth in an individual podcast, which you should definitely listen to because I think it's one of our best ones of the year. But the level of attention to detail and precision and expertise and also kind of thematic depth that's going into a movie that's also completely enjoyable in a classic blockbuster sense. It's kind of like watching like a vintage Spielberg joint. It's not like a modern blockbuster, but at the same time, you know, there's so much extra going on in terms of Jordan Peele's like relationship with film history and obviously like commentary on race and that sort of thing. I think we're both watching this film quite closely during Oscar season because they started releasing the Oscar shortlists, which is not the same as like the nominees. There's like a long list that they shortened down from like 10 names the main nominees but this seemed to be left off like several technical categories and we were both like what the fuck because this should be winning like all I mean obviously Avatar is going to win all the technical categories but like this should be up there and one of the ones that really annoyed me is the composer Michael Abels, did such an amazing and really interesting and thoughtful score for this and he has not been put on the long list he's on the long list for a different film but I'm like it should be this one <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, again, the more I thought about this, the more I was like, okay, so it's basically technically perfect, I think. And innovative. Like, they did some crazy stuff with cameras to make this yeah. happen. Genuinely original and interesting concept that's, like, driving the plot forward.
0: And Character- that's something, because it's a fucking UFO yeah. movie. Yeah. It's an original UFO movie.
1: <laughs> Has really complex ideas and themes fantastic performances across the board and the characters feel like real complex people who you care about. Like,
0: what more do you want? What more does anyone want from a movie? Like, it has everything. I mean, it stars a character who is a cinematographer named Antlers Holst.
1: I also think that like, Kiki Palmer has rightfully been getting attention for how wonderful she is in this movie. Yes, But I think Daniel Kaluuya, which we talked about on that episode, which again, you should listen to, we'll link to it. I just think he's so fucking good. I think like, he's a generational talent. Yep. Yeah, and the stuff he can do without saying anything, I just find mesmerizing. And there's been a lot of conversation in terms of like Oscar punditry this year about how it's like a week year for best actor, blah, blah, blah. And
0: I was like, there's an Oscar winner who was in a big movie this year who you could nominate. Like, hello. Well, first of all, it's a genre movie, and secondly, he doesn't talk very much. Right,
1: so there you go. (laughs) That's how it goes. (laughs) Yeah, I just, oh, what a picture, as they say. So we'll move on to my number six, which is Armageddon Time by the filmmaker James Gray. Um, This is an autobiographical film about his life when he was around 11 years old. So this is like early 80s, I believe, um, in Queens. And he is in the sixth grade, he is not a great student, he's pretty spacey, and he becomes friends with this black student who is a year older than him because he's been held back. And the other dynamic that's sort of at play here is that his family is Jewish and have sort of emigrated from Europe over the course of the 20th century. So there are obviously these like connections and legacies to the Holocaust, though I think feel like they've actually came before that was happening. But of course, anti-Semitism was on the rise in Europe, you know, before the war. James Gray is a director I absolutely love and revere. Um, He directed one of my favorite movies of all time, The Immigrant, which you should seek out. Movie that got buried by Harvey Weinstein. So no one has seen it. Classic tale. He also made The Lost City of Zed and Ad Astra, which are probably films that people are more likely to have watched. But this movie struck me as most similar to The Immigrant, which is about Marion Cotillard coming as a Polish immigrant in the 1920s and kind of getting manipulated into being a sex worker by Joaquin Phoenix, in that he's really not afraid to ask moral questions in his movies and not always provide satisfying answers. So in this film you have this young Jewish kid who is totally clueless about the world. His parents and his grandparents will try to be like, tell him stuff about the Holocaust. And he's like, whatever. But we see that he is that way because his parents who are played by Anne Hathaway and Jeremy Strong have deliberately shielded him from a lot of stuff growing up. So he has this kind of naivete and he becomes friends with this, black kid not really understanding that this is going to cause problems not necessarily like socially in the school because no one gives a shit but his parents who are like well-meaning liberals are in fact racist as you would imagine and you can kind of see exactly what's coming in this movie from miles away like obviously this friendship is not gonna lead anywhere good he's gonna be fine but this It's like something bad is going to happen to this black kid. And um, I found it unbelievably upsetting and affecting. The actors are both incredible. So it's almost all from the point of view of the character who's based on James Gray, who's played by um, a young actor named Banks Rapetta, who is unbelievable. And then his friend is played by an actor named Jalen Webb. And they are both such plausible children. That you completely, like, understand how, like, kids just sort of become friends with each other, like, really fast and almost over nothing. But Jalen Webb, who plays the black child, is a year older. He's obviously experienced some shit. He's living with his grandmother who has dementia and is, like, trying to avoid going to a foster home. And, like, obviously, like, understands racism, which (laughs) the main character doesn't at all. So occasionally he'll kind of be more knowing, but then the movie will also remind you that, like, he's 12 years old. So there's a scene that gets them both into deep shit where they smoke a joint in the bathroom of the school. And this kid has brought it in, and um, Paul, the main character, doesn't really know what it is. And he's like, he's like, it's full of tea, and you smoke it, and then you laugh a lot. (laughs) So it's like, it's... So, of course, this gets painted as, like, this black kid corrupting this white kid from a good family. And it's like, they're just children. They don't know anything. (laughs) Like, it's totally, you know, and as the movie progresses, you kind of see this young Jewish kid being forced to try to think about what he should and shouldn't do. And he doesn't always make the right decisions. But it's really a story about, like, how a moral consciousness is born and, like, at what age we figure out, what it is to behave in the right way, even if it doesn't make everyone else in our lives happy. And this has been a bit of a controversial movie. Obviously it's all from the point of view of this white kid. And I think some people didn't like that, but it's one of the best movies I've ever seen about what it actually is like to be a child and to sort of like be out of control of your situation and to not really know what's going on. And I think one of the things that people were complaining about a little bit were like, oh, well, it's just designed to like make white people feel good. And let me tell you, I did not. I felt really bad. (laughs) But in a way where like you get to the end and you feel like you've gone through something that was really worthwhile. I just thought it was incredible. Again, one that kind of vanished because it's sort of tricky and messy and not always fun to watch but um i cannot recommend it highly enough all his movies are great and yeah i'm gonna be haunted by the kids in this for a long long time which i realize if you're like i just want to have a good time at the cinema that's like not (laughs) not what you want but um all i can ask for is a movie that really sticks in my head and that one definitely has so highly recommended
0: sounds very impressive i wonder if i will ever watch (laughs)
1: Start with The Immigrant. That one's more, you know.
0: (laughs) Uh, So number five is one that I think you will have higher on your list. It is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed by Laura Poitras.
1: Yeah, I got that way high up. So we will save that one. So I'll just keep talking. (laughs) Because my number five is one that you also have not seen, as far as I'm aware. And this is the French film Happening, directed by Audrey Duan. This is based on a... I don't know if it's a memoir or a piece of autofiction by Annie Ernaux, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature this year. And it is about her experience when she is a university student, or maybe like sixth form equivalent student in France in the 1960s, and she gets pregnant and she needs an abortion. And the laws restricting that at that time were not friendly to women, shall we say. So this movie happened to come out right when the Dobbs decision got leaked earlier this year. So I watched this in a state of just complete emotional breakdown and fury. So I was I was a great mark for it, basically. But I wish it were getting more attention because I think it is pretty astonishing. It's very focused on the main character, Annie, who is played by Anna Maria Bartolomé, And I've seen a lot of movies about a young woman who needs to get an abortion, and a lot of them are amazing, but this one really lacks any sentimentality about that process at all. And I don't even mean the sense of like, oh, am I making the right decision? But just like, this woman just needs this thing fucking out. And like, she will do whatever possible to make that happen. And... There's like a great sort of depiction of like student life in Paris at this time and the inherent sexism of that, even while there's this sort of burgeoning feminist movement. And so the main character, who again is is Annie Arnault, obviously you're very sympathetic to her, but it's not like she's a particularly heroic figure. It's more that you're watching someone in a state of extreme duress, almost like a horror movie, who's just like... What do I have to do to make this happen? And there are a number of scenes where she talks to doctors that (laughs) will just make you scream. And the film actually depicts multiple abortion procedures, which are very upsetting to watch. Not just in the sense of like, it's so physically traumatizing for this woman to have to do this in an illegal way. Manner, The current state of illegal abortion is very different from what is happens in this movie, like it's mainly through pills these days, but I found the depiction of a young woman who wants to be a writer and wants to do something with her life and just refuses to allow this burden to take all that opportunity away from her incredibly compelling and again the willingness to actually show her body when the abortion is happening which again I know is like a tough ask for the viewer there's like one where you see more of her body and then one where it's just a close-up on her face while it's happening and like I don't know how the actress did this like it's just beyond me but I think it's really valuable to have that artistic depiction of the physical trauma that so many generations of women had to endure to have their own lives and yeah i just think i just think it's an incredible incredible film
0: yeah, I mean, I've heard basically universally positive things about this. People have been raving about it. Um, basically, the main reason I haven't seen it is because when I got to December and I was cramming in as many end-of-year films as possible, the concept of a deeply intense and traumatizing abortion film was not high on my list of desires. Yes.
1: <laughs> I mean, I totally understand why people would be like, I don't want to have to deal with this. It's a bit similar to, I mean, the movie itself is very different, but um, to The Assistant a few years ago, which is the best movie about the Weinstein situation and Me Too that has come out, but if people have the stomach for it, or like find they have the stomach for it at a certain date or time, I think it's really worth watching, especially in the context of everything that's happening with abortion in America right now. As I said, it's not that the same situation is occurring, but the feeling of history felt really important to me. There's also the the book by Annie Erno, which I own and have not read. So I'm sure that that is also a wonderful and valuable read. Great movie. I think it's also the director's
0: first film, which like,
1: <laughs> I I don't even know how that's possible. But, I, mean, I um,
0: feel like this year there was just a glut of really amazing debut features from women filmmakers. Yeah, it was really impressive. So my number four is Mad God by Phil Tippett viewers may recognize Phil Tippett's name from the credits on many classic sci-fi and fantasy movies like the Star Wars trilogy, Jurassic Park, Robocop. He is a industrial light and magic special effects guy, primarily known for stop motion little creatures and monsters. You will definitely recognize his style. But this original film, he has been working on it for 30 years. personally oh with a team of some paid and some unpaid friends assisting him and at the time i was like well this film is a unique masterpiece and over the course of the year i have just been like yeah this film is a unique masterpiece it is the most disturbing movie i saw this year that i actively didn't stop watching <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is unbelievably fucked up i cannot recommend it highly enough if you like basically weird horror It's quite short as well, it's 80 minutes long, so that's like another thing in its favour if you're like, stop-motion horror, what? But the premise, such as it is, is that the protagonist is this humanoid figure (laughs) who is put into a diving bell and he has to descend on a mission into a sort of underworld, which is just full of creatures and monsters and people suffering and weird machines and stuff. It is like being in one of those Hieronymus Bosch paintings of hell, but it just like never <laughs> ends. I think my letterbox review was literally like, this is like if Hieronymus Bosch made Saw, because it is the mind that created various weird little stop motion guys for blockbusters in the 80s has been given an entire feature length thing to put in as many weird little creatures as he possibly can, and it doesn't have to be child rated So all the stuff that these monsters are doing to each other is incredibly fucked up, not just in a sort of body horror way, but he finds ways to just make it so that you feel like there's absolutely no hope in the world and like there's nothing but (laughs) suffering at all. And the, you are doing a great <laughs> job of selling this film there's no way to describe this movie in words. just watching the trailer will pretty much tell you what it looks like but it's just this incredible creative accomplishment because there is no other movie like this Like people are not really making very many stop motion films and the ones that are made are you know I saw Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio this year it was fairly good <laughs> But this movie, which he spent 30 years doing, is just like the depths of a fucked up mind. And I saw some interview with Phil Tippett, and they were like, doesn't this movie just kind of make you feel like there's no hope for society? And he was like, you live in America, right? But yeah, it's fucking great. Like genuinely the only thing about this film that I was like not so keen on was that there's a couple of moments where he puts live actors and I think that was a mistake. He should have stuck with the little puppets and creatures and stuff. But yeah, oh my god. Mad God is incredible and you can stream it on Shudder or probably Amazon.
1: Uh yeah, I won't be watching that, but um thank you. <laughs> thank you for pitching it to our dedicated listenership. It's important for us to have to have our our respective, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. niches. <laughs> Oh my god. Alright, my number four, really on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of mainstream versus niche, uh, is The Fablemans by Steven Spielberg. (laughs) (laughs) Yin and the Yang, you know? Like, we've got it all covered. So, I watched this movie around a week ago. I had saved it as one of the last things that I was going to watch this year, and I... I'm a fan of Spielberg, like every living human who watches movies. I mean, what's not to like? But I'm not like an obsessive devotee or anything. I haven't seen a lot of his early blockbuster stuff. I do think he seems like the most lovely man in Hollywood, which really comes through in this movie, which is another autobiographical film about himself as a teenager, so a little bit older than the kid in Armageddon time. And it's basically the period during which his parents' marriage was breaking down. So it's like 12 or 13 to 18, I would say. And he is also sort of discovering filmmaking at this time. So there are sort of two parts of the movie, I would say, which obviously connect. But there's the sort of film part and then the parents' family divorce part. You know me. I love a movie about divorce. So I was like, great. I'm in. But I struggle to think of a movie made by a child about his or her parents' own divorce, which is a fairly large genre, that is so totally generous to both parties. Michelle Williams plays his mother. She is a pianist. She sort of like had aspirations to be a major concert pianist at one point, and then that obviously didn't happen because she had children. Um, but she's a, you know still plays pianos. Artistic soul kind of big personality. She is incredible in this movie. I mean, I love her, but she's so beyond in this film. She actually does an old-timey voice like someone would have talked with in the 1950s. I I will definitely be watching this film eventually. (laughs) I so respect the commitment. No one ever goes there. So she's just like radiant, full of light and personality. And then Paul Dano, whom I also just adore, plays his dad, who is an engineer who was
0: involved in like early stage computer development. I do think it's very Paul Dano of him to do this and Batman in the same year. Really respect it. 100%. And
1: he's so clearly such a nice man. He is so warm in this film, but also a little bit boring. (laughs) Like he's an engineer. He just wants to talk about engineering. There is a great scene where they're all on a camping trip. He's like made a put three sticks together to, like, start a fire and is showing them that, like, triangles have strength. And they're like, (laughs) I'm so bored. And then he's, like, making the fire later and the kids are all running off doing something else. And he's like, it's happening. The fire is being lit. It's happening. And, like, no one's paying attention to him. And I was like, yeah, I see you. Like, it really makes sense to me. But he has a friend who is played by Seth Rogen who... Michelle Williams' character winds up having an affair with. This is very obvious from the beginning that that's the trajectory that the movie's going to go in. And it's a situation where, like, obviously she's sort of becomes entangled with this other guy, but it's not as though either parent is, like, the bad guy. It's just that the marriage kind of isn't working anymore. And again, like, the husband is really nice. He's just kind of boring. And when the... Spielberg character, whose name is Sammy, played by the wonderful Gabriel Lebel, gets really into filmmaking. He sort of starts coming up with these technological innovations because that's who Spielberg is. And his dad is like, oh, fantastic. And soon you can apply this to something practical, like engineering. And you're like, oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So all of the family dynamics make so much sense. And he doesn't villainize anyone. Like sometimes the dad will say something that's kind of frustrating or the mom can be a bit self-absorbed. So it's not like they're saints, but it just feels like he really loves them and understands what they were going through. Meanwhile, he is a child and a teenager who is totally self-obsessed and a brat. I was like, I love this. There's like no attempt to be like, I was a great person. Like, no, he's obnoxious because that's what all teenagers are like. And is doing these really involved film productions, which is true to his life. But I think the movie got sort of marketed as this, like, ah, the power of cinema,
0: you know, of which also there are like a million films now. It's like, because every fucking filmmaker is doing their memoirs about it. And it's like, actually, not all of you need to be doing your memoirs. I realize this is a common problem among famous people, but like, not all of them need to be done. (laughs) Well, what's so interesting
1: about this and what I found sort of intellectually fascinating throughout the movie is that the first scene is him as a little kid going with his parents to see his first movie ever, which I believe is the greatest show on earth. I've not seen that. I might have that movie wrong. And he's really scared. He doesn't want to go to the movies because the people are really big and it's dark. (laughs) He doesn't want to go. And there's a big train crash that like hits a car and the car goes, you know, flying away and obviously the people are dead. And this is, like, his fundamental exposure to movies is fear, right? And so he wants to recreate that scene at home. Um, His mom gets him a camera and he keeps crashing his train set. And then throughout the film, his filmmaking and his art is not portrayed as, like, gee golly, movies are so fun. It's a tool of, like, dangerous power (laughs) and that sometimes makes him uncomfortable. It can make other people uncomfortable. It's a way of him distancing himself from what's really happening in his life. But it's a movie that's, I think, profoundly ambivalent about movies, which is just a fascinating thing for Steven Spielberg, the literal most successful movie director of all time, to do. There's a scene at the end that sort of gets at this that I won't describe because it's it's too near the end but I was so interested in what he was doing with that that's what kind of made the movie complicated and dense to me in a way that made me really admire it it's obviously also just like masterfully directed but um Tony Kushner co-wrote the screenplay with Spielberg and I think that you can really see his influence in terms of like the story's a lot more naughty and complicated than you might expect from a Spielberg film. It's also weird sex stuff, which is definitely Kushner's influence. But yeah, I had like a few small quibbles, but I just thought it was incredible. And I found it so inspiring that someone who's like 80 years old was like, I'm gonna do something new which he did with West Side Story also, which I don't think is as good a movie, but like he never made a musical before. And clearly he's still just like, I just want to keep experimenting, keep pushing and uh, without any sense of like hubris.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to see this. And I find it fascinating that he's literally someone that everyone can freely admit and understand shaped modern American pop culture. And also most people don't really think about him at all as a person or as an artist.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the artistry, it's partly that his range is so huge. So it's hard to kind of contain him, you know, but I think he's great. I think this movie's wonderful. And it's also the sort of thing where, like, I was having all these complicated thoughts about it, but you could take your family to go watch this and, like, they might respond to more just the family stuff or just think it was entertaining. I mean, like, it operates on a lot of different levels, which is also classic Spielberg, right? Like, he wants it to be accessible
0: to... A lot of people. Yeah, great film. Um, Everyone should check it out. Okay, so my number three is one that could really have been placed at any point on the chart from one to ten. (laughs) It is Tar by Todd Fields, which could be my very top film of the year, except for the ending, which both Morgan and I both have a lot of criticisms of. Uh, We will be discussing that at length in a future standalone episode, I hope. So yeah, Tar is one of the most critically acclaimed films of the year. It is directed by Todd Field. It's a psychological drama starring Cate Blanchett in an incredibly impressive original role. Her performance is oh, so good. And she is playing a composer and orchestra conductor. And it's essentially about like abusive power structures. The whole idea is that this character, Lydia Tar, is this uniquely famous figure within the classical music establishment. And it's this atypical dynamic because we've obviously got a lot of fiction and indeed reality about powerful abusive men but she is a woman in a male-dominated field who has a very kind of ambivalent relationship to the idea of herself experiencing sexism at all while also being a lesbian who preys on her own personal assistants and proteges. So that's the premise but the execution is just far more complex than that. It's an immensely... Nuanced and interesting interpersonal drama, but it's also filmed in an incredibly engaging way. I personally am not familiar with Todd Field, but he is a filmmaker who kind of shows up every eight years with a new film that, like, film people will be like, "This is incredible." <laughs> it
1: has been sixteen years, I believe, since his ah, last movie. Okay, <laughs> which is bananas. I mean, he had multiple things that I think were pretty close to happening and then didn't. So I think there was a lot of just bad luck, but um. It's been, like, forever, and maybe f- 15 or 16 years. His last movie was Little Children, which I love, which came out in 2007
0: or 2008. And then he just, like, wrote this during lockdown. I was like, who are you? <laughs> like, what? what? I mean, as you know, I love classical music, so I was already on board with this movie about Kate Blanchett as a fucked-up, mean-suit-wearing lesbian doing classical music. But beyond that superficial appeal... It is just so interesting and juicy, and we cannot discuss the ending here. But while the vast majority of critics seem to think this film is essentially perfect, Morgan and I are joined in our dislike of the choices that were made in the final 10 minutes.
1: <laughs> I've encountered a couple other people. Yeah, there's the a past few detractors. Few days. Yeah. So, 80%. Of the way into this movie, I thought it was going to be in the top few. And then I hated the ending so much. I thought it was almost disqualifying. I was sort of like, <laughs> Gab's going to have it in her list. I don't need it on mine. Like it's currently at 11 in my personal list. We'll obviously talk about that. I I texted you and I was like, we need to do a whole episode about Dark." Cause I was just like, I just need <laughs> to talk wait. about this. I think there's a lot about it. That's obviously wonderful, which you've described. The ending did make me sort of wonder about some of the stuff earlier in the movie too. We'll talk about my reservations. I will say with unqualified praise, though, I think this is the best performance Kate Blanchett has ever given. Which is really saying something. (laughs) Yeah, I don't understand how she does it. I don't understand how she keeps getting better. I actually find her kind of scary, not just because she's playing a scary person in this, but more in the sense of like, you shouldn't be able to do this. Like, this is not a natural (laughs) human. So I am very happy to be awestruck by her from afar. My number three is a movie that you have already mentioned, which is Saint-Omer, a French film directed by Alice Diop, who is a acclaimed and experienced documentarian. Um, and this is her first fictional feature, and it's the French submission for the Oscars this year. I hope it gets nominated. I was blown away by this movie. It has really stayed with me, which is why it's so high on my list. The basic setup for this film is that there is a... French Senegalese like writer slash journalist who is attending the trial of another Senegalese woman who is on trial for murdering her very young child. So the journalist slash writer kind of provides the frame narrative for this trial. Most of the movie takes place in the trial. And it completely upends every convention of like a legal thriller or a courtroom drama that you might have in your head. Um, I think I said to you at one point that it's like this was made without any knowledge of the Law & Order franchise.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we discussed this in our Film Festival episode a few months ago, and since then I've watched it and had a very similar reaction, which is that in addition to the fact that we are obviously not familiar with the French legal system, which is quite different from what we're used to, it also… Doesn't feel like a conventional law drama, which is an incredibly impressive accomplishment. It also doesn't feel documentary style, even though she's a documentarian, but you can also kind of see how she's been influenced by her work as a documentarian. Because one of the things that kind of stood out to me is the background actors, because obviously it takes place in this courtroom, and there's like all these lawyers and stuff who are in the background who look really normal and are acting really normal and talk in a way that feels extremely authentic. And that was just very interesting. And also the way the characters are introduced, you don't see any of the characters outside of the court aside from this viewpoint character. So it's like halfway through a key person in the case will be introduced and it'll just be because he's like walked into the room, which is not the way that most dramas function, you know?
1: (laughs) You also basically don't get any close-ups on any of those secondary characters. There are almost no close-ups in the movie at all. You get kind of a medium shot on the defendant. But... I know that she is a sort of disciple of the great documentarian Frederick Wiseman, who is known for very long shots and also for just sort of planting himself down in, like, a bureaucratic office and just, like, letting the camera roll. Is he the guy who makes movies that are, like, five hours long?
0: Yes. Okay, yeah, I know that guy.
1: And obviously the camera is placed with great intention in this movie, but you have really, really long shots that feel like they're allowing you to have your own reaction and emotions to what is going on and especially being said by this woman who is on trial who has the majority of the screen time in the dialogue. I'm gonna have you say the actors names because you actually did the background prep to figure out how they're pronounced. Uh, I did not.
0: Yeah the, the actress COVID. who's playing the defendant who I think has the more meaty dramatic role and it's quite an unusual role her name is Guslale Malonda and then the point of view character the academic is Keiji Kagame.
1: Yeah, so this defendant character, I was much less interested in the academics part of the movie, although I think it's there for a reason. and I think it's important to have that frame narrative. But like as an individual character, I wasn't as interested in her. No fault of the actress at all. It's just like, she's intentionally not as interesting, right? Whereas Malanga, the defendant, the performance is astonishing. We were talking about this you know, via text recently that I think... One of the things that American um, awards bodies and critics groups really could do better on is giving acting prizes and recognition to performances that are not in the English language. And this is a key example of one where like, this woman is incredible. You only see her on the stand. It's not like she's having... like
0: Yeah, I mean, she's literally standing in an enclosure for the entire yeah. film. She is standing inside a wooden box. And some of the stuff she's saying is like she'll do like a big monologue answering questions in the court. Other times she'll just be like saying something or reacting to something. But the character is conceived in such an unusual way, but in a way that also is very real. You can kind of imagine encountering someone like this, right? Even though the situation is obviously very unpleasant and strange, but it just requires such a like precision of performance to make that convincing because it's like, It's a film that's literally about her being on trial for killing her baby, which is a a fact that is like not in dispute at all. And the reason for the trial happening is like very weird because it's like, well, you know, you've done it, but like what happens next? And the reasons why she did it are extremely ambiguous. And the investigative process is completely different from what we as American and British people are used to seeing. And then like her reactions to stuff are off but not in a way that gels with a conventional stereotypical depiction of mental illness or whatever, you know? So there's so much kind of thought going into her identity and her emotional reactions to stuff.
1: Well, and we also don't know when she's being sincere in no. quotes and when she's performing for the court, right? So I actually didn't find her that strange. It was more that like, in a situation of extreme duress how would any of us behave right this situation of like what would you do if you killed your child not relevant to me not a question (laughs) that i have to answer but i think part of what i found so affecting about the movie is that they're basically like putting her on trial for her whole life not really for this particular action right and so she'll explain something she gets quite defensive about other things and We don't know what's going through her head. And as I said in that Film Festival episode, I think the greatness of this movie is that we never get inside. That's not what the movie is about. The movie is about giving her a degree of dignity, even in this sort of horrible situation where she doesn't have power, right? I thought this movie was incredible. I really want to watch Diop's documentaries now, and I also wanted to say, so I had Petite Maman on this list for a while because it was sort of in the like nether world between. Yeah, I think that was one of my last year films. <laughs> yeah, you had it on your list, so I was like, I'll leave it off. But between last year and this year, we had Titan, Petite Maman, Saint Omer, and Happening, all by female French filmmakers, all completely different movies, and all amazing. And I find that so encouraging and exciting, especially from a film culture that has been famous for its unbelievable misogyny. And like, that's just a hell of a run in a two-year period.
0: I mean, especially when the leading actress of Portrait of a Lady on Fire literally quit the film industry because it was too misogynist.
1: I was thinking about that. And so... France obviously has this unbelievably rich history of film, and you know you can watch. I really thought you were going like, to say unbelievably rich history of misogyny. <laughs> it's like, that, yeah, too. that too. <laughs> well, but the thing is, you go watch the sort of French New Wave films, <laughs> the ones directed by men, and that's part of what's going on in a lot of them. And I just find it really, really exciting that this, this is happening. I know four people isn't that many, but I can't wait to see the next films from all those directors. So yeah. What is your number 2?
0: My number 2 is Triangle of Sadness by Ruben Ostlund. We also discussed this one on our film festival's episode. It is a dark comedy and unusually for comedy it is very long, two and a half hours or something like that. I put this so high because I genuinely had just like such a ball watching this movie. I was laughing so much. In some regards, it is extremely blunt and obvious as a satire of terrible rich people, but blunt and obvious in a smart way. And as we talked about in our film festival episode, it's also just really accomplished on a filmmaking level, which once again is something that often falls by the wayside or is perceived as irrelevant in comedy movies. It has an ensemble cast, but it generally focuses on two main characters who are a couple of models, a man and a woman. The woman is much more successful than the man who is more of the kind of point of view character. Harris Dickinson and Cheryl B. Dean, who actually died this year, tragically young. But they become this sort of introductory characters, initially just in their sort of shitty and unbalanced relationship as like hot, stupid, self-absorbed people. And then they (laughs) get like a pass onto this luxury cruise because they're influencers. And this cruise is populated by a variety of mostly older, terrible rich people and is captained by Woody Harrelson as a drunk captain. And the other key character isn't really... Put forth until the final third of the movie, which is really interesting because her name is Dolly De Leon, the actress, and she plays one of the below deck staff on the ship. But she is like easily the kind of breakout star of this movie. She's an older Filipino actress who has like a long career in the Philippines. She's not really known in the West until now, but she's like got lots of attention from critics, rightfully so. But um, basically, the movie is kind of about the class divides between the various people on the ship, and they are put into extremely weird positions together and the thing that also makes this extremely distinctive obviously is that Ruben Ostland who Morgan and I both like a lot, Morgan more than I I think because she's seen more of his films but like he specializes in this extremely intense form of kind of humiliation comedy where people are just like behaving terribly in very weird ways that feel very Scandinavian to me like it's this black humor that is also kind of about like emasculating shitty self-absorbed stupid men this is kind of like if you imagine Zoolander was a really dark international Scandinavian comedy that's like (laughs) making fun of rich awful people
1: that is an amazing comparison I loved this movie too it's not on my list but it's Gotta be in the top fifteen or so. Yeah, I think of what I know why so this far. isn't on your
0: list, and it's because you waited so long to see it that you'd heard from every single critic that it was full of people vomiting, and you'd been warned by everyone like, watch out, there's going to be so much vomiting, and you were the only person on earth who watched this film and were like, Gavi, there's really not that much vomiting in this. I was expecting a lot more vomiting, and I was like, there was a lot of vomiting.
1: <laughs> people were saying that there was literally a half an hour of vomiting. There is not a half an hour yeah, of a few minutes. I was even told goes an goes a hour
0: <laughs> That's That's not true. Those are people with undiagnosed, like, ametophobia. <laughs> yes. Which, I
1: mean, look, if, if you enough. have that
0: problem, you should
1: not watch this movie. I'm not bothered by that so much. Not that I enjoy the sight of vomiting. Yeah, I was but, like, this is extremely fine. disgusting,
0: but it's not preventing me from enjoying the film.
1: <laughs> yeah, I... I think, like The Square, his previous movie, this movie is a little bit messy, it's a little bit too long, there's some stuff I would have changed, but overall, I had a great fucking time.
0: I think he's really good at casting, like he just finds the correct people. The casting is off the hook. Harris Dickinson, the whole point of this character is they've cast some guy who just is like a hunk, but not even like an A-list looking hunk, he's just this sort of vacuous looking guy. He obviously has a career, but like in this film, he is so fucking good. His performance is amazing. <laughs> and the thing is, Harris Dickinson's actual
1: career is mainly like serious British art the films. Souvenir
0: Part 2. Mathias yep. and
1: Maxine. He was in Beach Rats a few years ago, which may have been on my top 10. I can't remember. Um, Incredible film. He's got some like... Weird stuff coming up. He's really good buddies with Josh O'Connor.
0: People on Tumblr will recognize him as the guy who plays John Paul Getty in Trust.
1: Yeah. The FX series. <laughs> he is a serious guy, but also uh, very hot. And so <laughs> willing to perform the role of a dumb model. And I think he is great in this movie. I almost feel like my friend Fran Hofner on Letterboxd suggested that almost more of the movie should have from, been from his point of view. And I think that would have been an interesting shift because I think he's kind of the most successful point of view character because he's simply so stupid. Like there's just he's no awareness, but like all the old people on the cruise, perfect casting. The woman who plays the like. Head of running everything, yes. whose name I can't—I don't have on the top of my head—but she's just like a walking anxiety disorder. Yeah, this like ship manager oh. woman. <laughs> and then Dolly De Leon, I think, should win an Oscar. Like, I just think she is so good, so funny. Basically, I mean, spoiler alert, but it doesn't really matter. The ship winds up crashing, and then only a few people survive, and she's the only one with any practical knowledge of like how to function. Period. And so the power dynamic just completely reverses. And she enjoys that so much. She's just like, yeah, you all have to listen to me now. And it's quite obvious, but also really, really funny. I do also want to shout out the Film at Lincoln Center podcast, on which, I don't know, however many years ago The Square came out, five years ago, Ruben Ostland outlined the entire plot of this movie (laughs) and was just like, here's what I'm doing next. It's a bunch of rich people on a ship. And then they crash and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you, sir, are the least egotistical <laughs> like director. He just doesn't care. And I find that really refreshing. Um, he seems like he's having a great time. I look forward to his future work. Great movie. Love to see a truly international cast as well. Yes, absolutely. As long as you can tolerate vomit on screen, then, <laughs> you know. My number two is another one that you have already mentioned, which is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is directed by Laura Poitras and is a documentary about the life of Nan Golden, the photographer. It's kind of divided into two parts that like switch back and forth throughout the course of the movie. One of which is Poitras actively documenting Golden's advocacy against the Sackler family, which, for those of you who do not know, are responsible for Purdue Pharma, which introduced OxyContin to the U.S. pharmaceutical market and started the opioid crisis, essentially. So she talks in the movie about how she had an injury and became addicted to OxyContin, went to rehab, and then she founded this activist group, Pain, and a huge part of the Sackler's reputation management was that they gave a lot of money to museums, so anyone who went to the Met for the past like 50 years will have seen the Sackler Wing, which is where the Temple of Dender used to be. And indeed, there are Sackler Wings at every museum, Yes, or where. <laughs> and so they would stage protests at these museums, and because she is an internationally renowned photographer, she sort of made strategic decisions about which museums to target that either had her work in their collections or that wanted to do a retrospective of her work. And the other part of the movie is looking at basically her entire life leading up to this point. And so it's a lot of her own photography for when she was younger. It's sort of like family photographs that have been rescued from albums. There's a little bit of footage of her parents. I'm sure I've seen some of Golden's photographs. Yeah, me too. Because like when I started the
0: film, I was like, "Oh, I've literally never heard of this woman." And then I was like, "Wait a minute, I've been to a gallery show of like I've seen her photos." Because like her career is sort of founded on she produced a vast amount of documentation of queer people in the seventies and then the AIDS crisis, and particularly trans people and drag queens at a point where like no one else was photographing these people in their everyday lives, and she obviously was like part of the community. And so this memoir just feels like this true epic because you simultaneously have this political campaign that she's doing in the present day to do with the opioid crisis. But we're also getting this documentation of just like years of queer and counterculture history, which just is edited and delivered in a really smart way without feeling explanatory, but also still feels really important historically to see.
1: Yeah, so her background is that she grew up in this unbelievably repressive Jewish home. She had an older sister who she really idolized who wound up dying by suicide as a result of various sort of family problems and her parents treating her horribly. And then she herself was put into foster care. She kind of wound up running away and she winds up connecting with these sort of other teenagers and people on the margins um, and discovering photography and so you see this, again, decades of documentation of people who are living on the margins but as she says like that's not how they thought of themselves and it's the sort of beauty of that community and the support that people provide each other without becoming overly nostalgic or sentimental. Some of her most famous photographs are of her battered face after one of the men she was in a relationship with beat her up very violently. She took a lot of photos of that, which was a very transgressive act at that time. So she's clearly filled with love and nostalgia for the people she knew In this world, and at this time, many of whom have died because of AIDS. But it's not an exercise in just being like, everything was so fantastic (laughs) back in the day. And like she also dealt with drug addiction at multiple points in her life before the OxyContin. And, you know, the title, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, is intentional, right? The movie kind of covers everything. I found her candor about her life incredibly moving her photographs are incredible like it's a great it's great help to a filmmaker to be like yeah i just get to work with this amazing art and show it on screen and then all of that obviously ties together with the sackler stuff in terms of fighting against people who have destroyed the lives of in this sort of like second plague, um, is how she describes it. Yeah, I just was so moved and affected by this one.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a really impressive documentary, as you would expect, from Laura Poitras. And also, on, I guess, like a more superficial level, although not really superficial because it means I was being affected by art, but like I feel like it's a really interesting kind of conveyance of Nan Golden's photos because. It really makes you think about the idea that there is far less of a counterculture now than there was for the previous generation. And it also made me think a lot about representation like in the media and also the lack of exposure we have to people who don't look conventionally attractive. Because when you see all of her photos of people who are living, as you say, like on the outskirts of society are predominantly queer communities in urban centres, like people who are artists and creatives and are living in a lifestyle which is very kind of recognisably mid to late 20th century situations that aren't really as recognisable now. But the photos are very beautiful. And like these people have really amazing outfits and stuff, but they don't look like models, you know, they have a variety of you know, physical flaws and facial features and that sort of thing. And that isn't something that is accessible in mainstream pop culture at all. And we have this illusion, I think particularly among younger people, that social media gives you more access to other people's lives. And social media and like TikTok and stuff are so exclusionary to anyone who isn't really physically attractive. And that makes it so much harder for people who are working class or gender non-conforming in a way that doesn't conform with beauty standards and that just made those photos just feel like all the more important now, even though that is not what they were documenting at the time.
1: Yeah, I was thinking a lot about, and we have had conversations about this a lot, you know, not in podcast land. The fact that it's the life that it was possible to lead in New York City and many other places, but I live in New York, and this movie is about mainly New York, so that's the context I'm thinking in. In the 60s and 70s, where you could just like make a little bit of money doing whatever bullshit, and
0: then live as an artist. Yeah, it's like you watch like the, the Velvet Underground documentary that came out last year, and it was like, yeah. this is not a lifestyle that is accessible anymore. <laughs> it is very expensive to exist.
1: It doesn't exist, and I think it's a huge... Well, I... I don't think I know it is hugely damaging to art, but also to the people who live as artists and not even as artists, but as people in those spheres, obviously queer people, but just anyone who doesn't want to like be completely tied to the mainstream idea of like a nine to five job. Right. The feeling of something lost was really powerful in this movie, even as, as I said, she's not saying like everything was perfect.
0: Yeah, I mean, everyone had mental health problems and didn't have any money and were drug addicts and were being abused by the police, you know?
1: (laughs) Right. But also, like, the serious engagement with radical politics in the movie, like, they talk a lot about organizers at the time, um, which, of course, connects to the anti activism. I just found it tremendously moving and inspiring, not in a way where I'm like, aha, I shall do X, Y, and Z now, but as a depiction of like a way to live that is kind of better in a lot of ways than what we currently have. I would also say in terms of the Sackler stuff, if that is subject matter that you are interested in and you have not read Patrick Radden Keefe's book, Empire of Pain, I highly recommend it. I just listened to the audiobook He writes about Nan Golden a lot in the last section of that book, but also gives like the whole history of the Sackler family and like the nightmare of the opioid crisis. I would say reading that shortly after seeing that, this gave me even more context for that component of it, even though I don't think that's sort of the main emotional point of this book. But um, yeah, fuck pharmaceutical companies, basically. (laughs) All right. Gavia, I know what your number one is because I figured it out, <laughs> yeah. but why don't you tell You're our deduced. listeners? You have to Also
0: coming in at the uh, God, this podcast is fucking long. <laughs> yeah, my number one, which has been creeping up my list since I saw it many months ago, is Crimes of the Future by David Cronenberg. Am I predictable? Often, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So I hope you've all seen Crimes of the Future. I feel like this film has not received the attention it deserved, but that is often the case for every great film that comes out every year that is not costing millions of dollars, but it is a welcome return, For Mr. Cronenberg, born 1943, grandfather of the body horror genre. I have watched many of his films, although predominantly his horror films. Um, He's also done a lot of dramas. Morgan has covered more of those. But this one is really his comfort zone, but not in a way that feels like an old filmmaker sort of rehashing vintage material. It really feels like this movie has something to say while also being gross and fun and weird. It stars Viggo Mortensen as a performance artist in an abstract kind of post-apocalyptic future where human evolution has altered to the point where some people have weird mutations where they can, in Viggo Mortensen's example, just spontaneously start to grow new organs. And his performance art practice involves his assistant, a surgeon played by Leia Seydoux, indie movie queen, surgically removing his organs in a performance piece where he's in this sort of beautifully designed coffin thing. And Kristen Stewart also has a really fun supporting role as an investigator for this government agency that's an organ registry. But the dystopian future they live in is so kind of weird and post-societal that my personal theory for her is that she and her professional partner are just basically LARPing the concept of working for the civil service. Because I'm like, I don't feel like the government exists anymore. (laughs) And also culture is dominated by performance art. (laughs)
1: I mean, they definitely have made up that branch oh, yeah, of the government. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, they're like working out of a weird, fake office and just stalking people,
0: which I was like, you know what, it's commitment to yes. a bit. Like, <laughs> go for it. There were actually two films that were about performance art-based subcultures this year. Um, The other one being Flux Gourmet by Peter Strickland, which I actually liked less than I was expecting. I love his movie, The Duke of Burgundy, just absolutely incredible. Also really liked In Fabric. This one to me just didn't gel, but it was also like a lot of weird performance art stuff. But yeah, in Crimes of the Future, once again, Cronenberg is collaborating with production designer Carol Spear, who to me is just one of the most brilliant visual artists in American slash Canadian cinema. She has collaborated with him on many, many films and she is absolutely incredible at making these gloopy, slimy, weird, dark, grimy physical props and location sets of which there are obviously a lot in this. One of the main ones being this kind of sarcophagus that Vegan Mortensen sleeps in and has surgical projects in. But it's both a really fun kind of satirical story about just the art world, but also a discussion of, you know, how the world has changed over the course of Cronenberg's life and career. There's this sort of subplot about people who have begun to consume plastic, which is both fun in a body horror way, but also is very obviously allegorical to do with how we consume art and uh, pollution and that sort of thing. And there's also just a lot of character actors really allowing to, let their freak flags fly in this. Viggo Mortensen looks gorgeous. Lea Seydoux is really getting to have a lot of fun, as is Kristen Stewart. But there's also like a lot of more minor players. Don McKellar, a Canadian character actor who's appeared in several of Cronenberg's films, is really fun in this as another one of the organ registry guys. <laughs> and it also has a really excellent score by the composer Howard Shore, who most people know as the Lord of the Rings guy, but also loves to do some fun little weird techno stuff for Cronenberg. This really is Cronenberg at his finest. I enjoyed the hell out of it. I'm sure I will watch it again.
1: Yeah, I loved this movie. I very easily could have had it on my list, but again, I was kind of just like, I don't know. And I knew it was going to be on yours. So (laughs) I was like, well, we'll get to talk about it. I mean, this movie was barely released, which I think gets at uh, why it wasn't talked about enough. I also think contrary to what you're saying about how it doesn't feel like a movie by like an old director, I think it absolutely does feel like a movie by a director who's been around for a long time and is like looking back at his career. It's just also good. Yeah, I
0: don't (laughs) feel like, I guess what I was trying to say is you do get stuff even more so perhaps writers, like novelists, but like going back to comfortable material in a way that's like very much resting in your laurels. And in this, it's more of a kind of re-examining and perfection of something that he's already really good at and other people have attempted and absolutely not succeeded in doing
1: <laughs> yeah and I found the most i mean I loved all of the weird contraptions and and conceptually there's so much going on um our friend Charlotte was was also written about this as a cancer movie which I think is absolutely yeah. like a very potent allegory going on in terms of like Organs that just sort of grow in your body and then get removed, like yeah. But it's operating on many different levels of allegory, which I think is part of what yeah. makes it strong. I mean, a
0: lot of his movies, and particularly this one, function as a trans allegory, which is something he's been very open about. And he's also kind of talked about like as he ages, and also as he has lost people, including his wife, he is a lot more personally close to the body horror material, which he has been examining for his whole career. And, you know, he's been joking like, oh, yeah, when you get to my age, all you ever talk about with your friends is surgery, (laughs) you know?
1: Well, I mean, he said explicitly this is really a movie about about his late wife or about living with and without his late wife. And what I found so affecting about it, you know, I enjoyed all of the body horror stuff, which really is
0: pretty light, honestly. Yeah, it's, this like, film is not scary, and it's, like, less gross. No. It's very sensual, but compared to his other films, and compared to Titan last year, which I think was my number one, that movie is, like, fucked up.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, this is really... Gentle. It's sweet, it's nostalgic, not in the sense of, like, him being nostalgic for something, but, like, the characters kind of yearning for something, and it's a romance. Like, it's, in a way, sentimental, not in um a treacly way but like it's just the characters really love each other and i think i think vigo mortensen is absolutely astonishing in this movie i was just like let's all forget about green book like let's just put that (laughs) aside and focus on this he of course has collaborated with carterberg many times but i think he's incredible in this movie playing someone who's quite vulnerable And then, of course, everyone talked about Kristen Stewart because she's doing a weird voice, which I loved. But I think Leia Seydoux kind of holds the movie together because she has less flashy stuff to do, but she's kind of the emotional anchor of what's going on. And, like, the way she looks at Vigo throughout the movie, like, she obviously just loves him so much. And it's really about them, like, navigating this relationship that they've been in for a really long time and are they going to have sex with other people? And like, you know, I mean, by sex, I mean doing weird, you know, injuries to other people. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I really loved it. Great last shot. Yeah. I love Cronenberg. And it just, a strangely nice movie given the... (laughs)
0: the Yeah, I mean, this year it's like you watch this, you watch Tar, you watch Flux Gourmet, you're getting an interesting cross-section of films about extremely obsessive artists who are like defined by their work. I mean, I really need to watch this again because I remember after I first watched it, I was just so pleased by the complexity of the relationship between these two leads because there's ways that you could have gone a lot more conventional where it's like, oh, there's this guy who's this really famous, celebrated, eccentric artist. And then there's this younger, beautiful woman who's kind of his assistant and collaborator. But the relationship is both spikier and more affectionate than that and like there's points where you're like oh maybe she's like exploiting him or maybe she's the one who's driving the relationship or like what's the balance here and there's just a lot of ways you can interpret it and it felt very thoughtful and caring towards the characters
1: yeah and there's not really any discussion about their age difference so much i don't think and she's obviously she's much younger than vigo but she's 37 like it's not as though she's a 25 year old like she's a feels like an adult woman who like you know (laughs) knows what she's doing.
0: And also in terms of the makeup they use, obviously there's different ways you can present an actress who is a beautiful 37 year old and they are like fully embracing her eye bags in this, you know?
1: Yeah, we should also say just as a sort of final note on this movie, it's very funny. Oh yeah, it's (laughs) so funny. (laughs) Vigo's delivery of I'm not very good at the old sex, just like line of the year. (laughs) Yes,
0: and there's an amazing little segment that appeared in a lot of trailers because it's a really sort of cinematic and extremely Cronenbergian visual where there's this performance artist who's this sort of contortionist guy whose entire body is covered in ears. And obviously you're like, wow, I really want to see Ear guy. And then you watch the film and the joke is that he's this minor side character who the main character's like, God, his art is so pretentious. Like the ears don't even do anything. He's just covered in ears. What's the point?
1: (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah, you're
0: like, wow, David Cronenberg has been to a lot of
1: uh, gallery openings (laughs) and like... (laughs) Had some conversations.
0: Yeah, this was a great year for, like, eccentric, beautiful middle-aged men wearing drapey outfits, which is Vigo in this one and uh, Antlers-Holston-Nope.
1: Yep. There was also some anecdote going around recently about how, like, Martin Scorsese was really afraid to meet Cronenberg for the first time because Cronenberg had made all this weird shit. And Cronenberg was like, you made Taxi Driver. (laughs) The reason I bring it up is that, like, I went to a big talk with Cronenberg maybe 10 years ago, and he's just, like, the most chill, pleasant Canadian man. Like, he just, obviously, it's a public talk, like, it was, you know, it's, it's a performance. But he just seems quite lovely, and I love that he makes these fucking weird, violent movies, and is just, like, having a nice old time. All right. So... The final film we'll talk about today, my number one, is the film Great Freedom, a German movie directed by Sebastian Meise. I saw this in, I want to say March, and it has been number one on my list the entire year. So I'm not totally up on like every single detail of the plot of this movie, but it made a tremendous impression on me, which is why it is still number one on this list. The basic setup of this movie is that it takes place over several decades in kind of mid century Germany, at which point homosexuality was criminalized in Germany. So you have a situation which I had never really thought about before because not up to speed on like the history of, you know, sexual law in Germany, but a situation where, of course, during the Holocaust, gay people, queer people were put into the camps and then, once the camps were liberated, would then potentially be in a situation to be reincarcerated quite rapidly, if not immediately thereafter. And then, of course, for decades later, this is still a crime. So the main character of this movie, Hans, who is played by Franz Rogowski, who I think is one of the greatest actors working in the world today. He was also in uh, Christian Petzold's films, uh, Transit and Undina, is basically a man who is going to have sex by picking people up in like public toilets even though he knows that that's going to get him in jail and he just refuses to repress himself in any way. So, I think initially there might be a bit of a like gap between the audience and this character because you might think like you could literally just be like more discreet, like just try to, you know, keep it together. But he obviously has this commitment that says, like, I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. And part of that is being like the most important part of that for him is being sexually free, which then leads him to prison. So basically all the movie takes place in prison and you see him developing and managing relationships with other men whom he meets in prison, some of whom are initially hostile to him, some of whom he's kind of romancing. There's a situation where I think he and his boyfriend have both been incarcerated uh, at the same time. And we pick up with him like decade after decade because this keeps happening. And the question the movie is basically asking is like, how do you, be free in a situation where you can't be, right? And I don't think this movie has gotten nearly enough attention. I think it's a masterpiece, basically. And obviously, it the premise sounds quite dark, and there is some quite upsetting stuff in terms of like prison abuse, etc. But it's really not as depressing as it sounds, because it's so much about this person's effort to live his life within these confined circumstances and not be dehumanized or destroyed by them and whether that's possible. So the movie ends on kind of a down note, but I just found it beautiful. I found it incredibly humane Again, Rogowski, I just think is, I don't even know how he does what he does. He trained as a dancer initially, and I think that you can really tell that in his acting. It's not that he's doing anything that looks like dance, but he's so physically embodied in his characters. Like, his character in this doesn't talk very much, but you always know what he's thinking and feeling. And I was just completely blown away by it. And it felt like, again, a a kind of important piece of history that... Maybe in Germany is much more sort of a common knowledge and accessible, but that I, I mean, had. Never I, was, really I was certainly about. aware of it in general, but yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, once I had thought about it, I was like, well, of course that makes sense. It just I hadn't given it much thought, but it's not a movie that's trying to be like we're going to teach you something about history. It's just a great work of art that also happens to sort of be um, engaging with this, and it's technically just like a marvel this movie is better at aging Franz Rogowski over the decades. That was actually like,
0: my question, because when I initially heard of the film, I wrongly thought that it was just set in a concentration camp, and then later on I found out it had this structure, and I was like, how do they make him convincingly look older? Because like, he's what, mid-30s?
1: Early... Th- I think he's around our age, maybe a year older, yeah. so like 33, 34. Um, none of it takes place in a concentration camp. It's all no. in yeah, yeah. It's, prisons. Uh-huh. And they basically just changed his hairstyle <laughs> And like maybe add like a tiny little bit of like wrinkles, but he completely feels and looks older. But I think a lot of it is that his body language, like the way he carries himself, feels like an older person. But you absolutely know instantaneously by what his hair looks like and whether he has a mustache or whatever, like what Love era we're in. Great stuff. Yep. I mean, if you have any knowledge of like what men's hair looked like in the 20th century. It's like he has got a kind of Elvis thing going on at one point. At one point, it's very short. And uh, I just can't recommend this highly enough. My suspicion is that it's been kind of neglected because it's too queer. Obviously, there are many queer critics out there, but this is not a movie that is interested in any kind of like heteronormative partner relationship structure. And it is kind of, you do have to kind of think like, well, why is this guy behaving this way? And like, maybe I wouldn't behave this way. But the movie is just uncompromising in terms of like, this is who this person is. And this is the choice that he's making. And... Yeah, it's it's completely stayed with me.
0: Yeah. I mean, this movie sounds amazing, and I can also see why you specifically are really into it.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I love fucked up stories about uh, incarceration and <laughs> repression and, and also Franz Rogowski. <laughs> I just love him so much. I think he's so amazing. He's got a Sundance movie coming up with Ben Wishaw and Adele Eksharpoulos. I can't pronounce her name where he and Ben Wishon are in a relationship and then he cheats on him with Adele, directed by Iris Axe. Yeah, we're going to be seeing him for a long time. And he has literally no interest in fame, blockbusters, anything. He's just making his weird little movies. And fantastic. Makes me very happy. So yeah, that is great freedom. And that concludes our very long episode.
0: This is probably our longest episode ever, but I think we should also wheel off a few runners up as we often do each year. Not particularly numbered, but just films that we recommend.
1: Yes, I will add a few. Hit the Road by Pana Pahani, the son of Jafar Pahani, who is currently incarcerated in Iran. Wonderful debut film. No Bears, Panahi's Seniors film is one of the ones I really wish I'd gotten to. Marina Croatian film by another debut female filmmaker. Heard a lot of buzz about that one. Oh, so good. Very Hitchcock-y. Really, really fun. I really liked Corsage, the Vicky Creeps royal movie. Great if you like Vicky Creeps. I mean, like, what more? I liked
0: her in it. I thought the film was fine.
1: <laughs> Turning Red, Pixar's big movie this year. Absolutely joyous. And I would say... The last one I'll mention is Benediction, which is directed by Terrence Davies, which I think is doesn't totally work as a movie. It's a biopic of Sigrid Sassoon, but um, Jack Loudon plays Sassoon. People will probably recognize him, although they may not know him by name. And maybe the, well, Franz Rogowski is the best performance by a man this year. But like, Loudon's up there and I don't understand why no one has paid any attention to him. It completely made me reevaluate him as an actor. Yeah, he I've heard was, like monumental. a few people
0: say and like a Letterboxd and stuff that he is just like absolutely incredible. Um I think I'll probably watch that one at some point. I think that's on Netflix, at least in the UK, so accessible.
1: Yeah. It's really hard to play someone who's just like a smart person <laughs> and is also really traumatized. I found parts of that movie just emotionally like completely crushing. Um, Again, it doesn't all work, but I think it's worth watching for the performance alone.
0: What about you? Well, one that was like a really close run up for me was The Book of Fish, which is a Korean black and white historical movie that is about like an exiled political scholar who is sent to this remote island and he makes friends with a fisherman and they kind of collaborate on writing this reference book about fish. And I just find this film extremely charming in its subject matter. It like veers into this almost sort of like conventional hokey comedy at one point. (laughs) So I was like, the tone of this is not quite what I'd put in my top 10. But like, I just found this a really interesting and unusual film, especially for like the premise of a black and white historical drama about people collaborating on a reference book about fish. So yeah. (laughs) The Book of Fish. I also really liked uh, Saloom, which is a Senegalese horror thriller, which is just cool. It's like extremely cool. It's this group of mercenary guys. They got to like run some money or something across a border. A sort of vaguely Tarantino-esque, but like not in a douchey way. They've all got great outfits. They all look cool. And it's kind of got this magic realist element where they go to this unknown zone near the Senegalese border. So that one, fun. Saloon. Two documentaries I really liked. Three minutes a lengthening, which is a documentary that's about a home video of a Jewish village in Poland that was destroyed during the Holocaust. And there's only like three minutes surviving. And the documentarian basically goes through various processes to try and analyze as much as possible of this village from the footage to try and identify people and figure out what their lives were like and stuff. It was just like a completely unique concept and framing device for documentary. Weirdly, it's narrated by Helena Bonham Carter. I was like, why Helena Bonham Carter? But sure. And also the Netflix documentary, Is That Black Enough For You? It's so good if you just want like a million movie recommendations. It kind of covers the history of black cinema in America from the start of cinema, but it focuses on the exploitation era in the early 70s, kind of talking about early movies that were like about black anti-heroes. It will share so many films you've not heard of that sound fucking great. And it's also really interesting. You know, it's by an experienced film critic. My final recommendation is one that would have made it onto the list if not for the fact that like in terms of technical filmmaking, it's like nothing. <laughs> but the horror film Resurrection starring Rebecca Hall is a powerhouse performance from Rebecca once again. This movie is so exciting. It's about a woman who is reunited with her former abuser and basically it like tears her life apart, but it's framed in a kind of horror thriller way, and if you've seen Rebecca Hall, you know she's amazing. It's so exciting. But just kind of the cinematography in this is just like filmed in a bunch of like grey rooms and stuff, <laughs> which doesn't matter from an entertainment perspective, but I was like, as a critic, I cannot put this on the top ten. But it's a banger.
1: Yeah, basically everything you just mentioned is on my list of 70 movies that I'm theoretically still going to watch at some point, which, you know, as if, but um, yeah. Thank you to all of our listeners for sticking with us in this either very long episode or two-parter. We'll see. We love doing this every year. I mean, I think I could speak for both of us, say that we especially like to be able to sort of highlight some smaller movies that haven't gotten as much attention. So if you watch any of these on our recommendation, please do let us know if you have any recommendations for us. Also, please feel free to share. And yeah, pretty good year for
0: movies, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. We will have upcoming an episode on Tar for our Patreon subscribers. We will have an episode on The Thin Man, the beloved 1930s comedy mystery classic. We also definitely at some point want to do Avatar, but that depends on uh, when Morgan can see Avatar too. So yeah.
1: If you would like to support our work, get some of that bonus Patreon content, including an enormous list of books that I read and... 2022. You can do that at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. You can also leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast service you use. A five-star rating is particularly helpful for visibility. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online?
0: You can find me on Letterboxd at Taylor, and you can find my work at The Daily Dot.
1: And you can find me on Letterboxed at ML Davies, also theoretically on Twitter at the same handle, though I'm not on there that much because it's bad, on Instagram at Morgan Lee Davies, and the podcast is on a bunch of different places. We have our Twitter account at overinvestedpod, our Instagram account at overinvestedpodcast, our Tumblr account at overinvestedpodcast, and of course our website at overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and we will be with you soon. Bye.